This is Deb Donig with Technically Human, a podcast about ethics and technology, where I ask what it means to be human in the age of tech. Each week, I interview industry leaders, thinkers, writers, and technologists, and I ask them about how they understand the relationship between humans and the technologies we create. We discuss how we can build a better vision for technology, one that represents the best of our human values. Welcome back to another episode of Technically Human. We're ending the season with an episode of the 22 Lessons on Ethics and Technology series with a conversation featuring Dr. John Williams about the global imagination of tech. Dr. John Williams is a professor of English literature at Yale University. His work is focused on international histories of technological and media innovation and the perceived difference of racial and cultural otherness. His book, The Buddha in the Machine, Art, Technology, and the Meeting of East and West, published by Yale University Press in 2014, examines the role of technological discourse and representations of Asian and American aesthetics in the late 19th and 20th century film and literature. The book won the 2015 Harry Levin Prize from the American Comparative Literature Association. In my conversation with Dr. Williams, we explore the diverse international histories of technological innovation and how otherness and difference have been constructed across contexts and time. Hi, John. Hello. So, John, I wanted to start off by asking you to share how you got to the title of your book, The Buddha in the Machine. What made you pick that title, The Buddha in the Machine? What was it meant to reference or to evoke? Well, the original title, when it was a dissertation, was something much less streamlined and interesting. It was something like Technology and America's Asia. But that's a a longer title than I wanted. And to be honest, I had originally thought I might call it Buddha slash machine or something. But I found this small object by an artist group from Beijing called the Buddha Machine, which was a small little cigarette pack-sized recording device that played sort of tantric music on loop and was designed to uh, help one achieve different contemplative states. And the artists got the idea for it by encountering something similar in a Buddhist temple in China. And they thought that they could market this. And, and I realized that in some of their drawings, they actually included a little Buddha inside of the machine. And I thought that that was a nice metaphor for the premise of the book more generally, that uh, this sort of ambition for the Buddha to work from within the machine to create a kind of more organic and healthy relationship to technology. Can you say a little bit more about the the metaphor that you're using here as the premise of the book? What what is the premise of the book um, and, and how should we think about the Buddha in the machine in the way that you're talking about it? So there's a frequent anxiety in Anglo-American discourse from at least the late 19th century that the Western world has gone too far into mechanization, that we've over-mechanized, that our technology has become burdensome, that it's no longer a solution, that it's a problem. And there were, at the turn of the century, all different kinds of therapeutic uh, antidotes and ways of countering that. There were different modes of returning to arts and crafts and different labor movements and uh, a renewed interest in Mariolatry in the Catholic Church. 
But one of the more seductive and longstanding responses was a turn to Eastern religiosity, Eastern aesthetics as well, as a way of countering the perils of the machine, not as a way of abandoning machine culture, but as a way of trying to live with the machine in a more ecologically responsible and aesthetically rewarding way, right? So the, the, the turn to Buddhism isn't a turn away from mechanical culture, but a way of developing some kind of more humanistic relationship to it. And I discovered throughout the 20th century became a recurring trope, a recurring sort of motif as people began to think about technology uh, it was sort of coincided with this renewed interest in Eastern aesthetics. You know, this is interesting for me. I, I come from an English department, which you do too. What were you reading? What what literature were you looking at that led you to think about um, the Buddha and the machine in this way? On the early side, I noticed that quite a lot of cultural history and literary energy was emerging, especially during the Chicago World Fair in 1893, that this was a moment when Chicago was on the world stage and literally all of the different nations around the world were sending representatives to try and show off their country's uh, latest gadgets and their deeply modern progress. And Japan as well was important in sort of presenting itself as arriving on the world stage. And what I noticed was that this idea that Japanese and Buddhist aesthetics uh, circulated throughout the Colombian Exposition, the World's Fair at the time, as a kind of antidote to some of the, the more dangerous mechanical operations that were being displayed as well. And so I began to notice that this was something that a number of authors in the 20th century were, showed an interesting passion for Ezra Pound is a very famous poet who was interested in Eastern aesthetics and the sort of Chinese orthography as a medium for reinvigorating American poetry. I noticed it in a number of different authors, but finally culminating in a philosophical novel in the 1970s by the name of Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. Not a lot of people read this book today, but in the 1970s and 80s, it was probably the most successful in terms of publication numbers, the most successful philosophical novel of the 20th century. And the premise of the book is, is basically just that, that, that Buddhist aesthetics and Asian religiosity offer a kind of antidote to you know, living with the machine. As a fellow literary scholar, I share with you an interest in etymologies. Um, one of the etymologies that I've become very interested in is the root of that word technology, which is our topic today, in the Greek word techne. What do the ancient Greeks mean by that term techne, and how has it uniquely informed our current understanding of the relationship between art and technology today? So at the time, back, I mean, at the birth of the word, I guess, it was much more capaciously deployed. The techne could refer to, um, you know, different kinds of emerging technologies, including writing, but it could also be all forms of art and craft. It could be sculpture. It could be different kinds of gadgets. And uh, eventually, of course, that became into the Latin ars, which is where we get our word for the word art. But it's the root today of what we understand to be technology. And what I noticed was that every time, literally almost every time, uh, people were 
promoting Eastern aesthetics as an antidote to Western technology, they frequently cited the original Greek term techne as having embodied in it this idea of art and craft, that hiding within our own history of technology is this special kind of aesthetic experience, and that turning to the East is a way for us to sort of return to that original Greek essence of technology. So that's, that's where the idea of Asia as techne emerges as a kind of name for this larger discursive you know, set of assumptions. So is the claim here that, at least in Western culture, Asia is seen as recouping or in some way recuperating the original intention of the Greek word techne? And if so, you know, this is very interesting because when we talk about that word technology as anchored in the Greek word, we're talking about a genealogy that is not universal. It is Western. That word techne comes out of the Greek. So how do we talk about that word techne as one that evolves in the Greek and then becomes a way to talk about something you know, authentically intended by the term that then becomes deposited onto the idea of the East? Well, I should first say that I don't subscribe or necessarily promote any idea that there is a kind of authentic Asian techne that the West can actually deploy to make itself, you know, ecologically responsible or to have this kind of organic relationship with technology. I think in many ways it's a discourse. It's a set of assumptions that people have brought to different encounters with technology in moments where they feel especially anxious about the effects of a given technology in Western culture. So Asia's techne is in fact a Western invention, but it's a Western invention that has been so successful, you'll now find it quite a bit in the East as well. Uh, I noticed it, for example, in a chapter I wrote on a mid-century attempt to invent a Chinese typewriter by a Chinese-American named Lin Yutong, who was fascinated by the rise of technology and recognized that if China was going to industrialize and modernize according to Western models, that new forms of technological orthography would have to arrive with it. And so he really thought of his work in attempting to build a Chinese typewriter as reproducing this same mode, that when the Chinese typewriter could finally be built, he will have, you know, in his mind, he thought he would have finally uh, crossed over into Asia as techne, that he would be uh, fusing the, the sort of organic, beautiful, aesthetic traditions of the East with the mechanical inheritance of the West as kind of like an, in, in that single object. But that's, that's just to show you that Asia's techne became a, a, a hugely geopolitically grand concept that continues to operate today in the world. I want to tease out that definition of Asia as techne. That's a term that you use to describe um, some of the thinkers and the figures that you discussed in your book. Can you say a little bit more about what you mean by that term? What does it, what does it describe? What does it respond to? Asia as techne is essentially that it's it's a sort of aspirational discourse, actually, right? There isn't a, ever a sense that Asia has completely landed in the realm of ecological responsibility or that they've solved all of the problems, but that somehow, if if there were a way to tap into the quote unquote authentic realm of Eastern religion and the quote unquote authentic realm of Western technology, that there is hiding in there somewhere, this aspirational idea 
that we can live with our technology in ways that aren't harmful and you know frustrating. What about the related term techne zen? What is techne zen? Okay, yeah. Techne zen is in many ways the postmodern global capitalist version of Asia as techne. It's something that emerges really in the wake of the financial crisis of the 1970s and the rise of Japan throughout the 1980s as a real world power in technological domination, right? It's the time when the United States was very much worried about its competition with Asia. And so techne zen is the form of that global capitalist ethos that promotes Eastern aesthetics, Eastern religious knowledge as a way of expanding global capitalism. Global capitalism being the sort of like vast technocratic regimentation of supply chains, of distribution, of manufacturing, of like all of the different things, all of the different technologies that go into the network globalization of the planet, and then the embrace of Zen as a kind of fail-safe to promoting that without the dangers of, uh, you know, supposedly without the dangers of, of normal technological globalization. I wanted to go directly into at the opening chapter of The Buddha and the Machine, where you give a riveting description of a David Hockney photograph the title of which is Walking in the Zen Garden at the Ryonji Temple, Kyoto, February 21st. And you write about it that is a, and I'm going to quote you here at length, a Polaroid solution to the machine art dilemma of Western art relying directly on what was then new and cutting edge technologies to bring us to that supposedly more authentic Eastern ideal. The implicit idea, in other words, is that there's something already highly civilizational and modern and yet somehow more organic and healthy about Eastern aesthetics, something that must be embraced so as to counter the very dilemma created by that modern of Western, by that most modern of Western creations, the machine. Mm -hmm. Now, this is fascinating to me because Hockney's Polaroid and the result of, of that Polaroid in the photograph, which is a piece of art, is also the result of a machine since the Polaroid is a form of that Western techne. But it is also a techne as art and techne as photography that seems, at least to me, trying to get at a form of an Eastern techne or next that is somehow, as you put it, more organic. How do we think of that like really layered complexity that Hockney gives us between, on the one hand, the techne captured by the machine and on the other hand, attempting to give us this kind of uh, uh, techne in the way that you talk about it as this idealized Western form of an Eastern kind of Zen um, dimension and start to untangle that. Yeah, Hockney is an interesting case because throughout his career, he's in many ways been fascinated by things like perspective machines and even the sort of depth uh, strategies that artists have used since the Renaissance really to convey their canvases as though they were windows onto the world that with vanishing points and with the sort of uh, use of mathematical perspective, one could convey depth. And Hockney actually has a documentary where he compares that tradition, that very Western perspectival tradition of the window looking into a depth field, usually with a vanishing point infinitely deep into the horizon. He compares that to a 17th century Chinese scroll 
that details the trip of a, of a Chinese emperor as, a, as he, you know, wanders down the river. And the scroll itself is very different perspectively. There are houses that have, um, that are all sort of the same shape and that are positioned in different places on the scroll. Um, the people that are on the top of the scroll are about the same size as the people that are on the bottom of the scroll. So there's a real um, flattening of perspectival dimension. And yet, Hockney argues that that Chinese scroll is a much better experience or a much better representation of the experience of walking through a town uh, as the artist was intending. That the notion of a fixed perspectival window is in fact a kind of, he calls it a sort of false theology because God is always on the horizon. You never actually arrive there. And to have the experience of a fully perspectival window, you would have to essentially fix yourself completely. And by that, I mean like station yourself completely in space and time, which is not how any of us actually move through the world. We're always uh, in the world somehow and and constantly shifting our perspectives. So Hockney actually sees this and frames it in terms of Western versus Eastern theologies, that the Western theology is the God that's constantly deep into the horizon and is static and sort of mechanical. And the Eastern theology is one where God is everywhere and you are everywhere and everything is in flux and part of a kind of capacious consciousness. So his Polaroid uh, collages are an attempt to essentially fuse these traditions, to take something like the camera lens that itself relies on mechanical perspectival dimensionality and fuse it with the Eastern tradition of showing multiple perspectives at once. And so I, I saw Hockney as sort of like perfectly in, in terms of our historically at that moment, really trying to perform yeah, artistically the discourse of Asia as techne. I mean, there's an interesting question here about the role of techne as art and our ability to read art in terms of uh, our ability to say something or think something about techne as in technology. How do you think about using art, using literature, using photographs, using kind of aesthetic means by, as a way to get at some of the complexities of technology? I think it's really crucial. I can't say that, I don't know that I could get behind any grand statements that like art will save us or anything <laughs> to that <laughs> degree. But I, I am a firm believer in what in consciousness studies and philosophical traditions is known as the extended mind, that effectively when we interact with the world, the space of the mind and the space of thinking is larger than what happens in just the sort of cranially bound realm of the brain that mind is something that exists in and without us as well. Art and literature and all of the forms of creative expression, music and so on, these are forms of extended mind. And they allow for us to discover and experience new things that sometimes by simply handing ourselves over to different technologies, we don't have that same form of freedom and expression. I mean, the other part of it that occurred to me while you were talking is that one thing that gives us not just as a window into our consciousness, but in a window to a particular form of technological consciousness is that before we can build anything, before we can create anything, we first have to imagine it. And so there's a direct relationship that I think we see in the Hockney photo between how we imagine and how we build, built into that, you know, context of what the Polaroid is a piece of technology can capture, what it can show, what it per perspectively allows us to know about 
any given entity, including a text, right? And the scroll is that other form of techne, which is that other uh, root to which we get the word text from, mm-hmm. which, which is that form of artistic creation itself. Um, I did want to ask you to, to think a, a little bit um, about the dynamic that you articulate in the context of late 20th century and 21st century's expansive growth of technological aesthetics and ideation, much of which is developed in the East. So how do we think about that particular dialectic between East and West in the context of late 20th century and the 21st century's um, technological aesthetics? Right. Well, I should mention that I'm not a really a firm believer that there are these clear-cut distinctions between East and West, particularly anymore. I think that what we're really trying to get at are different discursive and cultural assumptions about what these massive categories like East and West stand for. But at this point, we really should be talking about what we mean by the global capitalist system of technical production and art, right? There are... um, really not so many things distinguishing Western forms of global capitalism from Eastern forms at this point. Certainly you can point to different cultural assumptions about how one is supposed to live with one's technology. But I think at this point, you'll find that if you visit China, they're very every bit as invested in harmful and healthy forms of technology uh, that you would find in, in the US and Europe. So technology has really become a massive global state of being for for all of us in many ways it's sort of like the fulfillment of marsha McLuhan's, you know uh, predictions that eventually we were going to sort of exteriorize our central nervous system throughout the planet like i think we've actually arrived in that point but we don't all have the clearest ways of thinking about how art and other forms of aesthetic expression allow us to to live in the world in healthy and humanistic ways you mention in The Buddha and the Machine that none of your work questions, and again, I'll quote you here, the pervasive influence of technological developments on Western life and culture, and as such are largely guilty of what historians of science call technological determinism. Um, your work looks to the East for more organic, less oppressive ways of living with machines. Now, while there aren't any practices from the East that the West uh, could could benefit while there are practices, I should say, editors, while there are practices from the East that the West could benefit from, aren't folks in the East still influenced by a kind of curse-based innovation where the person who innovates designs for someone like them or their test subject still kind of the, the basic status quo that we're, we're, we're dealing with here? In other words, throughout the world, regardless of how conscientious or ethical someone may strive for their work to be, isn't bias still inevitably coded into design? Um, Yes. And I would probably just clarify one thing in that question, which is to say that I'm not myself actually advocating for Eastern forms of of religion or aesthetics as a kind of antidote to Western technology. But that what I've tried to do is to track that assumption historically and try to describe how it emerged, first of all, and and then how it's developed and continues to be with us. So I'm very much think of myself as interested in conversation with people in history of religion, with the history of science, and even with contemporary technologists. Um, I can tell you that for the past three or four years, I've been part of a collective of scholars and journalists and technologists affiliated with the Institute for Buddhist Studies in Berkeley, California. 
And the project was called um, Public Theologies of Technology and Presence, each of those words being kind of aggressively debated in our different sessions. But it was a really interesting experience in having these conversations, not just with scholars like myself, but with different technologists from Silicon Valley who would come in and talk about the kinds of cultural assumptions they were bringing to their work and how they understood the sort of impact they were having on the world and what they were hoping for in terms of imagining their technology for the future. I'm very much not advocating for a position mm -hmm. of kind of, uh, I don't know what you would call it, oriental uh, philo <laughs> love, but, but rather just a way of tracking the assumption that people have made about that over, over time. I wanted to uh, ask a question about what many have called the crisis of modernity and the relationship between technological development in the West and certainly the belief in progress and technological development in the West um, and perhaps uh, its relationship to the growing aesthetic or discourse or a set of assumptions about the kind of techne zen and the assumption that the East offers a more organic form of connection. A lot of critics of tech and a kind of critic of tech who has, I think, become uh, very suspicious of of progress and the tropes of progress associated with tech are kind of suspicious of this Western belief in tech as constitutive of modernity. And that tech uh, has built into it the assumption that technological innovation is unequivocally identical to progress. Of course, in a post-industrial age, starting in the 19th century and more recently following the Second World War, critics have become really suspicious of the idea that technological innovation is inherently progressive. Some are characterizing our age as that term, a crisis of modernity. So first, what is a crisis of modernity? So I think of a crisis, the crisis of modernity um, emerging, first of all, as a crisis of representation. And that is to say that around the mid-19th century, throughout the world, there was an immediate and intense recognition that the forms of representation of language, of art, of poetry that people had inherited was no longer sufficient to describe the sort of mass influx of technology in urban centers, in factory production in communication technologies and transportation technologies, all of that was no longer matching up with the forms of representation and self-expression that people had inherited. And so there was a real attempt and has been attempt since then to try to come up with new forms of expression and representation that would match that intensity. And we're still following that in some ways. I think the turn to techne zen in the late 20th century was in some ways a response to the loss of master narratives, you know, the meta-narrativity of, of modern times that we associate with postmodernism, that in some ways there's still a search for narratives and forms of expression that can match the complexities of our technological world. Do you see that search for or the embracing of a techne zen brought on by a current crisis of modernity that might have been instigated by the proliferation of digital technologies, which at a certain point in time we're very enchanted with, and now I think have become a little bit disenchanted with. If so, what has this kind of techne zen impact been on our kinds of uh, digital cultural products? I think my current project is actually an attempt to answer 
that question a little more in depth. And that is, it's, uh, I'm writing a book on, it's called World Presence, The Trouble with Mindfulness. And I'm especially interested in the rise of mindfulness as a kind of therapeutic antidote to the, you know, the everyday anxieties of social media, of living with technology, of being constantly plugged in and overwhelmed by the media-saturated landscape that we navigate every day. My, I, it, there's actually this sort of fascinating parallel between the rise of communications technologies that accelerate our experience of everyday life so that, you know, there's one-click shopping and there's all of your information funneled through these uh, feeds in your social media. So that there's a kind of temporal flattening into everything happening right now at the same moment. And then right alongside that, you have this rise of celebrations of the present moment as forms of mindful being that allow you to ground yourself in the now. So on the one hand, you have all of these technological companies that are trying to make everything happen now. And then on the other hand, you have this massive mindfulness movement that says, just live in the now. And of course, they are at odds in many ways. And yet they both rely on this idea that somehow within the space of occupying fully the present moment, that will somehow have have access to these higher realms of of experience that that we all kind of feel like we need because of how anxious and addled we all feel by modern technologies. Can you give me a definition of what you mean by that term mindfulness? It gets thrown out quite a bit, I think, in our culture. Maybe some of the relationship that you see between our use of that term mindfulness in Western discourse mm -hmm. and its long genealogy in Eastern philosophy. Right. So mindfulness is a curious phenomenon. It is, um, there are debates even from within the mindfulness literature about what exactly constitutes mindfulness. Some people say, oh, it means, you know, a contemplative meditative state in which one empties the mind. And other people say, no, 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 it's not emptying the mind. It's just being fully present of the things around you. But if there is one thing that all of the advocates of mindfulness tend to agree on, it is that it is the desire to occupy the present moment in all its complexity, right? To sort of ground yourself in being here now. So be here now becomes, is, you know, it's the name of a popular um, 70s psychedelic exploration of, of, of contemplation. But it's also become a mantra for people who, uh, who need that sort of escape from the uh, obsession with with the exteriorization of all of our experience into technology, that being here now is the sort of baseline grounding principle of mindfulness. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is mindfulness is in, is in many ways this repetition of what in philosophical discourse we call the metaphysics of presence. Mm -hmm. But it's a way of sort of saying we need that. We need to embrace a metaphysics of presence because otherwise we have no way of coping with the massive technological you know, the saturation of media experience that we live with. And this has a particular genealogy, you argue, in Eastern philosophy that Western concepts of mindfulness borrows from? Yeah, and in some ways um, borrows from very selectively, right? It's interesting to me that the forms of Buddhism that you find in America and in Europe tend to really foreground the contemplative aspect of the religion. That is, Buddhism almost begins to simply be meditation for many groups. Whereas if you were to really explore the full world of Buddhism, you would find that there are all kinds of practices 
that fall under the rubric of Buddhism and mindfulness meditation is really just a small part of that. In fact, most could even argue very convincingly that most quote unquote Buddhists in the world don't meditate. That what they do is they have, you know, practices of, um, of rituals, of recognizing um, ceremonial moments, of sort of moving through their life with different superstitions and, and all of the different forms that accompany a lot of different religions. But mindfulness meditation is really only a part of that for the majority of Buddhists. And yet in the West, it has become the sort of metonymic representation of all that Buddhism stands for. So it's an interesting sort of funneling of all of the complexities of Buddhism down into this core of just being in the present moment allowing and allowing yourself to have some kind of therapeutic experience by withdrawing mainly from the technological world. I mean, one thing that I took away from your book and one thing that I see now that I've look at, looked at the culture through the prism of your book is that a lot of what um, what the West thinks about as, you know, Asia as techne is grounded in a very kind of archaic, much older and a bit caricatured form of Eastern lifestyle and Eastern mm-hmm. self-conception. And I was thinking about that prism in maybe a confrontation or a bit of a collision with uh, our current approaches to the East, principally China in the context of technology. So I'm curious, has your thinking about the relationship between Western and Eastern interactions around technological culture changed as, for example, Western nations increasingly see Eastern technological production as a competitive threat to Western technological innovation? Or, for example, China's approach to technological innovation increasingly finds use in technical products for the surveillance of his citizens or oppressing human rights in Hong Kong or in what the Biden administration has recently recognized as genocidal atrocities against the Uyghur population. Do these current terms of thinking about the relationship between tech in the East, particularly China, shift how people in the West are thinking about Asia as techne or are these ideas about Asia as techne so ossified in Western tropes of the East that they can't be shifted by our current situation in a geopolitical context? Yeah, that's a good question. It's never an ossification. I think I didn't include this in the book, but I really think about Asia as techne as one of a triangulation of concerns that emerge in terms of Western characterizations of the East. So on the one corner, you have Asia as techne, which is Eastern religion and aesthetics are a kind of antidote to living with technology, that Asia is the model as to how one might occupy that more um, aesthetically pleasing and and therapeutic relationship to technology. But in the other two pole or the sort of two angles of the triangle, you have on the one hand, Asia as tech-less, which is, you know, characterizations of the East as without technology, as mindless hordes, as, you know, sort of like just living still uh, in pre-modern societies. And then the other corner is uh, what I call Asia as techno, which is the sort of like fear of Asia accumulating and assimilating all of the Western technologies and beginning to compete and even to dominate the West through its assimilation of that technology. Um, So Japan in the 1980s is a really good example of that, where part of the fear was that they've so completely assimilated uh, Western modes of production and technology that they're exceeding now that uh, trajectory. And, uh, you know, the question is, are will they be, you know, 
beneficial overlords or not. And we find that something of that today happening as well with China, that China is such a massive uh, geopolitical force in the world of technology and is even well exceeding um, the technological ambitions of, of the U.S., that there is increasingly this fear that that the East is too technological, right? So it's this kind of interesting flux where on the one hand, you have assumptions about the East and its tradition as being um, consistent with organic relationships to technology. And then on the other hand, you have this tradition where there's a sort of mimicry industrial complex where Japan and other Eastern nations have to aggressively assimilated Western technology, but there's, they're always sort of playing off each other. And in many ways, it goes back to classical tropes of Orientalism that deny them the coevalness, right? Because in, in many ways to say the East has a tradition of uh, technological aesthetics and organic relationships to technology is in many ways to ossify or to crystallize some ancient version of the East, that they no longer occupy this special place, that if if only we could go back to ancient China, then we would have arrived at the, the sort of model for the kinds of living with technologies that we have. But those are, again, that's that just to sort of show you that Asia's techne is always a little bit aspirational and always a little bit orientalist. Yeah. Just to define for our listeners and the term Orientalism, it's a term proposed by Edward Said to describe the way that the West oftentimes uh, fetishizes and caricatures uh, the East through its own scholarly uh, production um, and enchantment and oftentimes uh, eroticism of the East. So is Asia as techne just another form of Orientalism? Does it complicate the terms of Orientalism? Does it challenge the terms of Orientalism? Or does it just reproduce them? Uh, yeah, I mean, all of the above. I think it's a, it's a, those are really good questions because I think, I mean, Orientalism is, is a vast category. The Saidian form of it that he outlined in that book in the mid-70s had specifically to do with colonial imperial forms of characterizations of the East that were self-reproducing, that really had no relationship to the East itself, um, and that were used to justify forms of colonial oppression that, you know, you, you find in history. In the 20th century, I think you have a more complex Orientalism that emerges where you have on the one hand, this sort of characterization of them as, you know, techno, as techless, you know, forms of relationships to technology that needed Western supervision. And then on the other hand, you have this disenchantment with Western technology itself, in which Asia as techne emerges as a kind of underground solution to the very same anxieties that, that people were having about the technology in the East in the first place. Now, this is a question that goes a bit beyond uh, the context of your book, but I'm thinking back to a conversation I had a while ago with the author of Nintendo Nation, How Nintendo Conquered America, and focusing particularly on the Mario Brothers. And I'm wondering, as much as there is Asia as techne, is there a concept of, for example, America as techne that's a counterpart in the East? Is there a way of thinking about Western relationships to technology that the East itself metabolizes? And if so, does that interact with the concept that they may know that the West has as Asia as techne? 
I guess the question is, you know, as much as we have a concept of the East and its relationship to technology, surely the East has concepts of its West and of the West and its relationship to technology that may feed the culture as well. So I'm wondering if there's a kind of interplay between those things. Yeah, that's a really good question. I don't know that I can speak uh, exactly to the, I guess, that in relationship to Nintendo and the sort of Japanification of American childhood that that we've seen since the 1980s and 90s. Um, my research simply shows that Asia as techne is essentially a Western construct, but that it has been deployed strategically throughout the East as well, particularly in moments where people needed the particular vocabulary that it gives rise to in order to get something done that they were really excited about, whether it's, you know, um, solidifying corporate governance in Japan in the 1980s, or as in the case earlier I mentioned of inventing a Chinese typewriter, it really has become a kind of global discourse in its way. But I'm not, I'm not an, I'm sort of on the ground <laughs> enough in Asia to know that where exactly the, the, the forms of stereotypes of the West would emerge in that, in that respect. Involving Italian. I guess Occidentalism would be, there are books interesting <laughs> on Occidentalism and, and the, the sort of root. Uh, stereotypes in the other way, for sure. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Playing out around uh, fantasies of Italian plumbers, um, being able to... Uh, yeah, there you go. Right. <laughs> some mushrooms. Um, yeah, I wanted, right. <laughs> I wanted to talk about one of your papers, which is uh, titled World Future, and which captures a core idea that traces back to Aristotle, which is the idea that we cannot and ought not to solve for the human. Instead, maybe structures so the argument goes, should be pliable and large enough to fit into multiple interpretations that, that should uh, disavow one line of thinking. Now, in that paper, you, um, you say that, there, and I'm going to quote you, there may be worlds still available to us that we have yet to imagine, but they will almost certainly require a more radical thinking machine than we have been utilizing thus far. I guess I should ask first, what is a thinking machine? I guess uh, minds are very good thinking machines. <laughs> I think that, that that argument that I make in that essay has a lot to do with the discourse on climate change. Um, I was especially interested to discover that around the mid-century, there was a huge shift in the vocabulary that people in the West used to talk about the future in that there was no longer this assumption that the future was a singular or univocal thing that's coming, that, that there isn't just one future that's out there that we will arrive at together, but that there are multiple futures, that there's a plural possibility of futures. And, and, you know, this obviously coincides with a revitalization of quantum mechanics and so on. But for the most part, it, it had to do as well with narratives about the future that we, that we embrace or don't. And it's the rise of science fiction. It's a lot of different ways of thinking about the future as a plurality, as opposed to a singularity. And what I noticed was that there is a particular management discourse called uh, scenario planning, where corporations pay, you know, different think tanks or have firms that are within the, their own company to come up with different stories about the future as a kind of collective understanding for what might happen in different scenarios. So scenario planning is basically hire a think tank, they come, they develop based on the data set that you give them and their own research, four or five different stories about the future with the corporation being a kind of protagonist. 
And then the corporation takes those stories and says, how do we think with all five of these futures together for the future of our company? And what I noticed was that when it came to climate change, a number of different oil companies and other large polluters were interested in imagining alternative futures because they didn't want to imagine climate change as something that they necessarily had to respond to, right? If there are different possible scenarios for the future, then you can imagine more capaciously what that future looks like. And this arrives at a time when computationally, we're beginning to get a sense of climate change that is very singular, that there are, in fact, going things are going to happen <laughs> in the future in singular ways that will be fiery and troublesome and hard for many people on this planet. And so I was fascinated by that idea that at the very moment when what we think of as a progressive ideal, that is imagining multiple futures, was actually being deployed for very reactionary conservative means to get away from thinking about the inevitable and in many ways imminent dangers that are on the horizon for climate change. So when I talk about the thinking machine in that context, I'm thinking about a kind of futurology that can begin to acknowledge a singularity that more people could get behind, to imagine climate change as a reality that's coming and then begin to think with our responses to that, as opposed to just simply, like many of these corporations want, allowing the future to sort of exist and fan out in different possible pluralities. In the introduction, you cite um, Jorge Luis Borges's uh, very famous short story, Garden oh, yeah. of Working Paths. And I was mm -hmm. really curious about that because it seems to tie this argument that you're making about possible futures versus future in the context of climate change to the kind of Eastern philosophy and theology that Borges enlists in that story. And I was interested in this for a couple of reasons. First of all, it's called the garden of the forking path. So it has the environmental context built in right into the structure of it. Second, it of course enlists um, concepts of futures taken out of Eastern philosophy. And third, it's really a story about narrative itself and the production and the possibilities of narrative. Now, just to give listeners a little bit of background um, into narrative theory, narrative theory, at least in one uh, iteration of it, says that in the beginning of a story, many things are possible, that the story can start off with a set of characters and they can go in any direction, number of different directions. And in the middle, things are probable, meaning some futures are foreclosed and some are still possible and others are more likely. And by the end, everything is necessary. That everything in that story inevitably led up to that point. That's a narratival principle. It's one that is true in fiction, not necessarily true in life. So there's three things here, I think, that the story is juggling in relationship to the context of your um, use of it in terms of the environment, in terms of narrative and the relationship between art and knowledge, and the third being Eastern philosophy. Can you say a little bit about you know, how you're thinking about those three things that you enlist in your research, narratives, uh, theory as a literary scholar, uh, environmental thinking in the context of this particular project, and Eastern philosophy as it um, ends up in our ability to think through futures and the consequences of that for climate change? Yeah, I mean, I'm glad you draw attention to that part of Borges' story, because in many ways, it is a media theoretical exercise. He's thinking about communication across geopolitical frontiers through this particular story that emerges of this, you know, this spy 
and I don't want to get, you know, no spoilers, but there is essentially a kind of speech act or form of communication that emerges and is sort of amplified by way of larger media um, apparatuses in the story. And so I was fascinated by that aspect of it, that there is in the end a kind of amplification of a geopolitical communication that begins there in, in the garden and in the tension that emerges in terms of multiple possible futures and the garden of forking paths. But of course, it was also interesting to me that Borges, uh, as do many people in the discourse on Asia as techne, tend to romanticize the East as the place where these creative imaginings can take place. So Borges was also fascinated by like the, the Thousand and One Nights, the Arabian Nights, and read them frequently and thought of them as the kind of model for good stories. There was even uh, a story that he claimed to be interested in, in the Thousand and One Nights, somewhere in the middle of the stories where the Queen Shahrazad, as she's, you know, telling a story each night to the king in, as a way of, you know, keeping away her death the next morning, that that night somewhere in the middle, she begins to tell the story of herself and how she came to tell the king these particular stories, which means that the next night would essentially be retelling the second night that had begun with the retellings of the story. So he would sort of enter an endless loop. And that idea that in the East, there is this possibility for temporal flux, for the plurality of possibilities, for the sort of extended networked consciousness of the universe, like all of those ideas are kind of caught up in these romantic ideals, which is why, you know, in that particular piece, I show that the scenario planner for Shell Oil was going off meditating and and reading about, you know, Eastern religiosity and really sort of embracing that idea of an aesthetically Eastern temporality as informing his planning and his management strategies for Shell Oil. So mindfulness, good for our anxiety about the impending end of the world, less good for <laughs> actually helping to mitigate the impending well, end of the world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and actually, I'm not sure that it is good for our psyches. I think that it, the thing that I've noticed about mindfulness research is that most people approach the phenomenon with the question, why is this so good for us? But very few people ask in the beginning whether, it's, whether that's actually true. You know, the, I'm, I'm not against, of course, relaxation and you know, thinking in terms of more contemplatively. But there is this assumption that the practice of mindfulness necessarily leads to more empathetic beings, that it necessarily creates clarity and um, sort of a, a wonderful aesthetic experiences in our mind. And I think that that's um, an assumption. And I think it's an assumption that is grounded in the fear we have about living with our technologies, that in many ways, mindfulness offers from the beginning a retreat from the extended distended technology and temporality that we experience in our everyday life. So we want mindfulness to work because we're so distended technologically in the world. How has your research influenced the way that you think about technologies? How has your research into mindfulness, or for example, thinking about East as techne, um, influenced any particular practices that you have around your technologies or the way that you think about the technologies that you, that you do engage in, if at all? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it does. I, I think of technology literally as an extension of my mind, but that in that regard, 
it's really good to mix things up, <laughs> you know, to do any, to do any one thing for too long can create fatigue and, um, frustration and anxiety. So I'm certainly not against technology. I think of myself as embracing and being very excited by different forms of technology, but because it's an extension of mind, it's very important that we understand the modes of production that we're engaging in as we participate in these technologies, that, that these things are historicized, that we have information about who controls the different forms of extended mind that we engage in. And that's what's most troubling about our, our day to day. To me, it's what's troubling is not that we're engaging with screens or with different forms of media, but that we have so little control over how we structure our relationship to those things. I think that's what, what troubles me the most. The context for the series is thinking about the role of the humanities and humanities-driven inquiry in the context of technological culture and production. What value do the humanities as a set of disciplines and humanistic values as a tradition play, or what role can they play in cultivating a better understanding of and thinking about what it is that we do when we envision design and create data technologies? Where does your research lead you to? Well, I'm partial to literary and aesthetic studies, if only because it's my career, but I really do believe that everything that people claim mindfulness can offer you, that literary and artistic engagement, that those actually can provide those forms of being and feeling and moving in through the world. So for me, you know, mindfulness may be, you know, writing down your thoughts in your journal or reading a book or doing a painting or writing a song, like all of those things where you actually for a moment can control some of the modes of production and some of the space into which your technological extension of mind is operating, that that can be really regenerative and really beautiful and powerful. And, you know, sometimes that means adopting, you know, using forms of technology that we have to pull out from massive corporate control but, you know, this is the, the sort of reality of our, of our life today. Final question. The series of which this episode is a part is titled 22 Lessons on Ethical Technology for the 21st Century. What one core lesson would you want to advocate for as a lesson on ethics and technology that you want listeners to take forward as we move deeper into the 21st century? Mm, that's such a good question. I, I mean, I, there are two, two lessons I would offer. One is question where it comes from. And by that, I mean, where does the technology you're engaging with uh, arise? What's its history? How, how is it affecting you? And the other one I would say is you don't have to turn it off, but try using it in a different way, right? Like try imagining yourself and your relationship to your technology in ways that uh, emerge from within and that are part of a, a kind of more creative mindset than the sort of inherited uses that we have to engage in for the most part. That's now 23 lessons on ethical technology. For Is that okay? All right. <laughs> Happy Thank to have you. added. <laughs> Thank you yeah. very much, John. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. And that's all for the season of the show. We'll be back in August with brand new episodes. In the meantime, check out our archive to explore what we're up to or to see past episodes of the show. Go to www.etcalpoly.org. And don't forget to subscribe. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Audible, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you in August. 
The 22 Lessons in Ethical Technology series is co-sponsored by the National Science Foundation and the Cal Poly Strategic Research Initiative Grant Award. The show is written, hosted, and produced by me, Deb Donig, with production support from Matthew Harsh and Elise St. John. Thanks to Jake Gardner and to Emma Zimbro for production coordination. Our head of research for this series is Sakina Nuruddin. Our editor is Carrie Caulfield-Eric. Rate or review us on Apple Podcasts and feel free to contact us with any suggestions, complaints, or ideas. 